Something strange is happening today. Today is Holy Saturday. Here at the end of the Triduum, on the cusp of the Feast of Easter, something strange is happening today. This is the day where we feel the loss. We participate in the loss that those first disciples felt. Those who followed Christ, who walked with him in their daily living, and, and today, today we feel the loss, the loss of Christ. He was crucified on Good Friday yesterday for our sins. And that's what Lent is about. It's putting us in a place where we can own Good Friday, where we can own Easter, that, that Christ didn't die for our sins in some nebulous, generic way. But that Christ died for my sins, those sins that I go to confession for over and over again. Christ died for those sins, for those behaviors that I seek to relieve um, stress apart from seeking first the kingdom of God. Whether that be a sharp tongue, or a wandering mind. That Christ died for my sins. Christ died for your sins. And so here we sit, unsure of what to do on Holy Saturday. And I hope that you've been able to attend those Triduum services we talked about last week. Going to each of those liturgies and feeling the weight of this time leading up to Easter, the weight of the passion. Not rushing too quickly to Easter. Last week uh, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, we read the entire passion narrative. And it took a long time, and you probably thought, good gracious, will this ever be over? (laughs) Your feet were hurting. Your children were restless. But we, we waited through it. We said, this... This is important for us to remember. And so I hope that you followed those readings in in the Missal. I hope that you participated. Um, Most churches follow the, the, the style of reading that passion narrative in such a way that we participate in the readings. In fact, my, my daughter who's approaching first communion this year, she, um, she got in the car and she said it was a different reading today. There were there were um, there were three different people reading, and then we had a part. And I said, "Oh yes, yes, we did have a part." And the reason we had a part, I told her, because th- this was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. The reason that we had a part in the readings is so that we could remember our part in his crucifixion. And of course, a seven-year-old's like, "What?" <laughs> We had a part in his crucifixion. It's like, oh yes, because Christ died for, for us. Yes, yes, of course, of course for us. But he died for our sins. We got around to it. 
because those are phrases that we use and it's kind of built into us. We know the correct response. We go to Sunday school. We know that you're supposed to say that Jesus died for our sins. And of course, she's right at the place where she's going to confession for the first time as well. And so I was able to say those things that we go to confession for. Christ died for those specific sins. And so our sins, our individual sins, yours and mine, play a part in the passion narrative. We talked last week about how Christ meets us directly in our suffering, in our specific suffering, that Christ bore our specific suffering on the cross, and that our specific suffering is able to participate in his. If you missed that show, you can get it on OutsideTheWalls.com on the archives. We talked with Dr. David Franks about that. It was a great conversation. But today, we're looking at on the other side, our very specific sins are what put Christ on the cross. Our own personal hells Christ went into to free us from, just as he, in that great ancient reading that we'll address today, entered into hell to rescue Adam and Eve, our first parents. Christ enters into those personal hells to bring us our redemption Christ enters into those places where our sins have banished us, and he breaks the bonds of sin and death and brings us freedom. And if you think that that's the kind of thing that can't happen, that that sounds too good to be true, and I don't know your specific habits, I don't know your specific sins, I would just say to you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if your specific sins are graver in your mind than mine are. It doesn't matter if you look at the saints and say, the saints had to go to confession for pride, and I have to go to confession for shooting someone. Uh, How can that be at all connected? Well, because Christ died for your sins. Paul says that he was the chief of sinners, and yet Christ appointed him an apostle. The good news is not that God has made a way to be in relationship with those in the appropriate socioeconomic stage. The good news is not that Christ has made a way for a certain political proclivity or a certain certain race to come back into relationship with God. The good news is that Christ looked on us while we were still sinners, and Christ died for the ungodly. Not just some random ungodliness, but for those things that take us and sever our relationships with God. God says, no, 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 you're the one that I want. I'll die on the cross for that specific sin. And so here we sit on a very uncomfortable day, Holy Saturday. We don't often in the church year set aside a day to do nothing. Christmas Eve is probably the closest because society allows for that. A little bit. But I encourage you today to take some time, even if you can't do the whole day, to really meditate on what does it mean that Christ died specifically for you. We've talked on this show about Andy Gullihorn before. He, uh, he and his wife provide our bumper music. He's got a song that I want to play for you now that really addresses this topic that we're talking about. It's called God Forsaken Place. It's available on his album Fault Lines, which you can get at andygullihorn.com. 
Let's listen together. He said you're never gonna lose my love Go ahead and try So you drank from the river Until it all ran dry And you run from your conscience Fast as you can Cause you're going to hell Again and again But oh, even then There is hope There is grace Even hell is not a God-forsaken place In the push of a needle In the drive of a drunk In the hand on the trigger Of a smoking gun In the cell of a prison In the death of a child In the arms and the bed Of another's wife There is hope, there is grace Even hell is not a God-forsaken place Sad and quiet On that Saturday He had somewhere to visit Before the stone rolled away Yeah, he went straight to hell Where he knew he would go Saying the worst of our darkness We are never alone No Even hell is not a God-forsaken place Even hell is not a God-forsaken place Even hell He said you're never gonna lose my love Go ahead and try That's God Forsaken Place by Andy Gullahorn. You can get it on the album Fault Lines over at andygullahorn.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Doug Beaumont. Uh, he is the author of Evangelical Exodus, and we're going to talk about his conversion story. If you're a convert, tell me your story over at facebook.com slash Walls. Twitter the handles at Outside the Walls. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the the foundations and the implications of our faith. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Here on this Holy Saturday, uh, we're talking with author, professor, speaker, blogger. He calls himself an armchair philosopher and backseat theologian, Dr. Douglas Beaumont. I'm not sure you can call yourself a backseat theologian when you have a, a doctorate, a PhD in <laughs> theology. Uh, how exactly do you do you pull that off? Uh, well, when I when I wrote that originally, I, I didn't have the PhD yet, and you know, it's, it's I figure it's always good to over. Uh, deliver and under promise. So <laughs> it's stuck. It's stuck. Well, you're, you're the author of a number of books. You've got the the Evangelical Exodus, which is a story about people who, like you, came from this specific location in the Evangelical Church and found your way into the Catholic Church, by and large, through the stuff that was going on at the seminary. What you were being taught there drew you into the church. Yeah, we, we kind of dreamed it all up. Um, uh, probably right about the time that I was coming into the church, several others were as well. And there were just a lot of rumors swirling around the school about, about how that came about and who was responsible and kind of a little bit of a witch hunt going on. And um, so we just originally just wanted to set the record straight and, and get our actual stories out. And, um, you know, most of these guys were uh, in PhD programs themselves. Everybody had graduated from the seminary. And it, as it turned out, we, you know, we all had, what I consider to be pretty interesting stories and well-written and everything. And we thought, well, shoot, maybe this could be a book. And yeah, next thing you know, we're, uh, we're published. So. so now what was the seminary that, that all of these various people came to the church through? Uh, it's called Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. It's a little independent school. It's not attached to a university or a church or even a denomination. It's, it's basically, um, kind of the, uh, the brainchild of, uh, scholar named Norman Geisler. Mm -hmm. And, um, he was, was really big in like the, the eighties and nineties as a Christian apologist, um, had some unusual quirks, uh, with his theology. Uh, for example, he was a big fan of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and yet he was also, you know, very much in the dispensational rapture, you know, kind of crowd, uh, that came out of Dallas theological seminary. Right. And he wanted to promote that package, uh, in a seminary in the South. So even though Charlotte already had six or seven seminaries, he started his own okay. and uh, it, it drew a kind of unusual crowd, which I, I think is, is probably largely uh, part of the reason that so many have left and become Catholic. Mm -hmm. Thomas Aquinas will do that to you. Yeah, he's not he's not the safest person to read as a Protestant. Uh, you have to really pick and choose, and um, you know the the curriculum was sort of designed to get people to do that. But eventually, you start to realize that he wrote more than one or two uh, books, and <laughs> um, right. when you get into those, that this you know the, the picture enlarges uh, mm -hmm. to the point where you're starting to compare what what this whole package is um, with what you're getting back, you know, back at the home base. Um, and I, I know for a lot of us, that was that was a big part of it, was just uh, trying to reconcile the fact that all these amazing thinkers we were reading were all Catholic, but then all of a sudden when it came to the gospel, we had to read somebody else. Well, and there's this this whole idea, you know, I went to seminary in uh, the Wesleyan Arminian tradition at another non-affiliated seminary in Kentucky uh, called Asbury. And we did a lot of reading of the church fathers in, you know, in that greatly abridged uh, section of the book. And okay, we want you to read these things about the fathers, but but gosh, don't go and read uh, like th their commentaries 
on the Old Testament or the New Testament because that's getting into dangerous territory all of a sudden because they are very Catholic. They're talking about the Eucharist in terms that that really upholds this idea that Christ is truly present, uh, that n- no Protestant church really subscribes to. And so well, you keep the good stuff that we like out of the Old Testament. Uh, they had really good things to say up until 1500. It's fine that they that they condemn heresies uh, like Arianism and Nestorianism, but you get to the 1500s and when it's us who's uh, schisming, when it's us who is having a difference of opinion from the early church, well, now they don't have that authority anymore. Right, as long as... Uh... As long as the good stuff, you know, is is chosen against the standard of what you already think, <laughs> then then you get to be the authority because um, you're you're picking and choosing what turned out to be right according to your tradition. And yeah, I experienced the same thing. I, I was uh, Dr. Geisler's assistant when he wrote his systematic theology, his big four volume, and um, my job was to essentially go through his views and find support from church history um, in, in four different eras. And it was really easy when we were working on the nature of God and stuff like that, because he basically just followed the Catholic Church when it came to that. Um, but as we transitioned into the nature of the church and the the sacraments and the end times and all this kind of stuff in, in volume four, where I came in, uh, it became a very difficult task. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you basically just don't have people even thinking many of the thoughts that modern evangelicals do. And, and if they did, they generally disagreed with them. Right. So now th- we're, we're kind of skipping to the end of the story here of that thing, which was that final catalyst, which brought you into the church. But uh, what was your experience with the Catholic church earlier in life? What was that process for you of uh, what you initially thought about the church and then coming into this place where you began to be more, as G.K. Chesterton says, where you began to be fair with the church and then began to, to love the church. Where did you start? Well, I, I didn't really even become a Christian of any kind until I was a young adult uh, in college. And I basically ended up running in largely Baptist, Calvary Chapel, evangelical, slash, 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 right. <laughs> uh, type movements, where um, the Catholic Church was just really kind of something out there and weird and the few times anybody would talk about it, it would just be to bring up how ridiculous they they were in some belief. And, you know, thank God we've broken away from all of that crazy tradition and we're back to the Bible. And and that was largely the extent of it. I I, I spent a couple of years really interested in, in end time prophecy. And a lot of those guys were, were very anti-Catholic. Um, they would sort of borrow from early Protestant theology, which almost no denomination follows anymore. Um, but the evangelicals would, would, would often go back to uh, the Pope being identified as the beast and mm-hmm. uh, Rome being the harlot and this sort of thing. So, you know, there was maybe a couple of years there where I would have probably considered myself pretty anti-Catholic, but I was completely ignorant. I, I couldn't tell you anything that I didn't read in my goofy little prophecy books. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but uh, I started noticing that uh, as I gained friends that were ex-Catholic and that sort of thing, um, it just sort of became just this dry, dusty old thing that I wasn't interested in at all. And I'd say that's probably how I spent most of, of my Christian life up and until, you know, the, the mid 2000s when, um, when I started really being confronted with the, the church fathers and orthodoxy and how all that fits together. 
Um, and actually reading those guys and seeing just the unbelievable richness and wealth uh, that the ancient church had. If you were to look at, at one instance, one church father, one writing that he gave that really shook your understanding of, of what the Catholic church was and made you take a, a hard second look, uh, what would that church father, what would that writing be? Putting you on the spot. I, I think, I think, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think probably the, the most convicting moment came when I was, I was reading Thomas Aquinas and then th- this was somewhat far into, into my, my journey, but, um, I came across this passage in the Summa where he talks about the faith of heretics. And he asked the question, um, does someone who holds a heretical view of one article of faith have genuine faith in the other articles with which he agrees with the church? Well, thinking like a Protestant, my answer was clearly yes. I mean, you either affirm what the church teaches or you don't. I mean, what else is there? Well, Aquinas surprisingly, as usual, says, no, he doesn't. And I thought, wow, how, how's he going to get out of this one? Well, <laughs> uh, when, when you see faith as, as trust in a religious authority and, and not your own, um, then heresy reveals the fact that the heretic, uh, even when he agrees with the church, he doesn't agree for the right reasons. He doesn't agree because that is a religious authority. He, he agrees for some other reason, his own knowledge, his own feelings, whatever. And so for Aquinas, he said that, that that's a revelation that the person really was a heretic from the beginning, but maybe was only accidentally orthodox um, for some time. And so his answer is no, that, that this shows that the heretic doesn't have any faith at all. And I, I thought, my gosh, like this is basically what I've been training people to do for the last 10 years. Right. When you think about faith as if it is a, here's a list of a checkbox list and you, you go through and, okay, I, I assent to that belief. I assent to that belief. I assent to that belief. So here I've got orthodoxy. So here I have faith. That would be one picture of it. But the Catholic church looks at faith as if it is a, a gift of grace that God gives to us to be in union with his church. And that's, that's just one checkbox. It's either a yes or a no. Yeah. In fact, I remember, um, during RCIA and, and, and I was pretty well convinced by the time I, I began RCIA, but it was sort of the last ditch effort to find a way out. <laughs> right. Um, but only about two weeks before Easter, when we were to come into the church, our, uh, the priest that was teaching RCIA handed out the profession of faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, Oh, by the way, this is what you're going to say, you know, when you, when you come into the church and it, I said, well, wait a minute, you know, I believe everything the Catholic church teaches, like right. the catechism 700 pages long. I, I don't know yet. And, uh, I had to remember back to what Aquinas said and I thought, yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, I, I can actually say this, even though I don't necessarily know every single thing the church teaches. I mean, there's really only one question that needs to be answered here. Right. The question of, am I going to listen? Uh, as paragraph 87 of the Catechism says, he who hears you hears me, the faithful receive with docility the things they receive in various forms from their pastors. Am I going to receive from the church or am I not? We're talking today with Dr. Douglas Beaumont, author, professor, speaker, blogger, and more. Find out more information about him and his writings over at Douglas Beaumont, B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T dot com. Why don't you join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter, the handles at outside the walls. If you're a convert, first of all, happy anniversary. Second of all, tell me about your story. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and we're talking today here on this Holy Saturday about conversion. It kind of happened as an accident. Uh, I was trying to think of what do we talk about here on on Holy Saturday, lining up my show. And the last couple of years, uh, of course, the show is only two years old. The last couple of years, we have we've done a conversion story. And so it just seemed appropriate on this day that so many people are entering into the church, making their profession of faith, which Doug talked about just before the break. I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church teaches, uh, proclaims, and believes to be revealed by God. That's such a, a big statement that people are are coming into agreement, making a statement of faith, standing before the whole church, the whole body, and saying, I, I believe, I'm, I'm with you. I I really, or they're coming to experience for the first time a sense of unity that they don't even fully comprehend yet. Uh, so, Doug, thank you for being on the show. You you converted in 2014. Uh, welcome to the church. Happy anniversary and and all that rot. Thank you. Appreciate being on. So now you you said that you were looking at that statement and uh, realizing in RCAA that you were going to have to say this in front of people and and really kind of mean it. Uh, what was that like for you when those words actually escaped your mouth in in the service? Here you are actually not just practicing it, but declaring it. Yeah, I, I was I was a little freaked out. I mean, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, um, you know, the, it, it's such a slow burn, you know, and it's kind of on your terms up until that point. And then Easter Vigil, you're sitting there like, oh, my gosh, when this is over, I'm 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 Catholic. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for someone like me that had spent you know, a good couple decades already, you know, not being Catholic, <laughs> right. definitely not even wanting to be. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was sort of bizarre. I, I remember one of the other SES, uh, converts, a, a, a woman, uh, coming up to me afterwards and grabbing me and saying, say it, say I'm Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I, I chunk it out a little bit. Like this is the first time I'm ever going to be, you know, I've ever said this and it was, it was really, uh, you know, moving and amazing, but, um, yeah, I, I I remember thinking as I was looking at that little slip of paper that you know that this probably should have been explained the first day, <laughs> right? And um, now that I'm actually heading up RCIA for for uh, the parish where I work, um, I changed the inquiry program around so that the first day that that is all we talk about mm-hmm. is the profession of faith and what faith means and why it makes sense to be able to do this even if you don't have the whole checklist done. Um, so we, we we put that up front now. I remember for for myself, uh, there were still a couple of things that I I was not yet ready to to say I understood, you know. And that's as a seminary educated guy, you want to understand those things that you profess. You want to dissect it and look at it in the Greek and parse it in the different various whatevers and say, okay, no, I I completely understand this thing now. And it becomes almost like this uh, this dissection of of knowledge rather than truly an act of faith. And so, paragraph eighty-seven, which we, which I referenced right at the end of the the last break, was kind of the thing for me. Looking at it and saying, "I am not the authority; I am not the arbiter of what what's orthodox and what's not." And so, even though I don't necessarily understand uh, every doctrine about Mary, even though I don't understand every doctrine about purgatory, and this was back when I was converting. Uh, I trust the church because I've seen that she is consistently right on all of these things. And so I can say, yes, I believe it, not because I completely understand it, but because I trust that the church is telling me the truth. And so I'm going to 
jump in with both feet. Uh, but like you, my wife and I, probably three or four months after, we'd still look at one another, loved loved the church, loved the mass, loved every part of living the sacramental life, but we'd look at one another and go, oh my gosh, we're Catholic. <laughs> yeah, it is. it does take some getting used to, for sure. And I mean, you know, here I am several years later, I'm still not totally used to it in a lot of ways. Um, I, I remember just about a year ago, some Mormon missionaries came up to my door and um, I've been doing Mormon ministry forever. And um, I, I realized as I started talking to them, like, I'm doing this as a Catholic now. I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> and it, it did turn out a little different than, than before. And, yeah. you know, the first time they said, you know, so what, are you, what is your faith? You know, oh, well, I'm, I'm Catholic. It, it always still felt a little weird. Yeah. We've got the, the four-foot Mary right by the front door. So no one, no one has any question when they come up to the front door uh, what they're going to encounter. Did you not get your Mary when you, uh, like, I thought that was part of the conversion process. Uh, here's your, here's your chrism. Here's your Mary. There you go. <laughs> well, my first icon was, was a Mary. So I, I, I got that about three years before becoming Catholic. So okay. I think that counted. It's, it's, uh, it counts. It counts. So here you are, you've, you've come into the church. You still are in possession of all of those, uh, those gifts that you had, all of the study that you had. Uh, and that that charism that you had to go out and talk to people about the faith, now it's just reoriented and redirected uh, under now the authority of the Catholic Church. Uh, how are you finding that it's the same in talking about your faith, and how are you finding that it's different? Well, I think what what guided most of of uh, my friends, you know, in the book um, to to Southern Evangelical Seminary was. Um, was there was a very strong apologetics bent to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, it was all very much about proof and evidence and, and, and that sort of thing. So uh, to have somebody like that become Catholic you know, is, is a big deal. It, it, a lot of the same ways that you say, um, you know, the, the process that led us to become Christian and then the kind of charisms that come along with, with our disposition toward defending the faith, um, all of that has to go into the conversion process as well. And so I think what's helped me the most is being able to explain to people who are themselves considering becoming Catholic and, and even Catholics that are doubting um, that, that that was just such a big part of my process that I, I didn't have anything that was just culturally there already. Uh, I, I sort of had to, to fight through, you know, all of the preconceived notions and the confusion on every single issue. Um, and even though I don't necessarily remember every one of those steps, um, it's it's very easy for me to sit across the desk from somebody that's saying, yeah, but the Eucharist just doesn't make sense. I can say, yeah, I know, but here's this thing, you know, um, and coming up with ways to think about things as a Protestant, I think was also really helpful that, well, you already believe these two things. And really, this is just another thing like that. And um, so I think coming through that, that long, arduous process of um, discovering that the church really can defend itself that the principles that I learned in logic and metaphysics and all these other sorts of things, um, you know, really they find their, their total fruition in the Catholic church, whereas they, they never really did with evangelicalism. Right. You know, and one of the things I found coming into the church is because you have the, the language and the lingo and the, the, the ability to speak Protestant as it were, uh, that, you're able to answer questions that a lot of Catholics, cradle Catholics, wouldn't be able to simply because there's a language barrier. The Catholics have their way of saying things, and and as soon as they say those things, 
uh, all of the Protestant warning bells go off. And it's like, oh, I know what that word means, even though we're using the same word to say different things. And so a lot of times when, when a Protestant comes into the Catholic Church, they end up bringing one or two people with them just through their ability to uh, continue in those relationships and explain and answer those questions right where they are. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that ends up forming kind of its own ministry too, where you know a lot of the guys that helped me come in helped me understand things. You know, now we're sort of side by side, and you know the chain just continues, kind of passing up the <laughs> right. passing up as as we go. Um, you know, I, I don't know very many people in, in in my circle that became Catholic and then just kind of went, well, I, I'm just going to go be a monk now. You know, right. they're are still very active in, in helping others make the transition too. So let's talk about this book. The book is Evangelical Exodus, and it's a, a collection of stories, your own story and the stories of others who through study in seminary basically read their way into the church. Who are some of the people that are in this and, and how are their stories maybe a little bit different from yours? Well, I, I somewhat arbitrarily pick the decade prior to me becoming Catholic, <laughs> um, to, to, to sample people. Um, and that really went back to the beginning of, of the people that I knew, um, with, with, um, Josh Bentoncourt. He was, he was really kind of one of the first in, in my circle, um, to become Catholic. Um, you know, probably about half of them are off pursuing a PhD right now. Um, Andrew Pressler writes for Call to Communion, the website that, uh, Brian Cross and some other, uh, pretty big guys are on, um, and he was very helpful um, in, in in coming in. Um, yeah, but you know, most of the rest are are just kind of finding their way right now. But um, I think that what what I found interesting, you know, I mean, I really just edited this was uh, reading the different stories and seeing where the interactions happened, because of course they did here and there, but also just how different the journey was. Um, you know, Jeremiah Coward and his wife came in largely because of contraception. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they found themselves nearly alone in in the evangelical world, uh, you know, treasuring babies, right. <laughs> and you know, beyond pro life, but actually having them and and rejecting um, contraception. Um, that was a big part of of that of that thing for them uh, is to discover the Catholic Church that way. And then um, others were just were drawn to the liturgy, and others were drawn to the intellectual tradition. So that there really wasn't just like this secret cabal of guys getting together and then, you know, we all jumped ship at the same time. Right. Uh, really, most of us really discovered each other along the way or after, um, not even realizing that, oh, you became Catholic too. Um, and uh, so, yeah, for me, that's a lot of the value of the book is that is that even all these guys came from the same place, similar backgrounds, a lot of similar charisms and interests. Uh, there was still a, a wide variety of of initial doors that opened us to the church. Yeah. We've been talking with Doug Beaumont, editor of the book, Evangelical Exodus, Evangelical Seminarians and Their Paths to Rome, available on Ignatius Press. Find out more about them over at douglasbeaumont.com. That's B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T.com. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And tell me what brought you into the Catholic Church. I want to hear your conversion story, if you are indeed a convert. Uh, Happy anniversary here on this Holy Saturday. We'll be right back right after this.
Something strange is happening today. Here this holy Saturday where all the earth is still. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. You're listening to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. So glad that you're here. We've talked with Doug Beaumont. He is uh, uh, the editor of a book of conversion stories called Evangelical Exodus, available now on Ignatius Press. You can go get that. If you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with someone else, as always, take them over to OutsideTheWalls.com. You can subscribe there to the podcast, either on uh, iTunes or on uh, your your Android device, or uh, you can find the show times and locations. So you can listen to it live or you can listen to it on demand. It's it's your call. Uh, if you do listen, if you are a, a subscriber to the podcast, I'm going to encourage you to uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Um, helps it show up in more, uh, more searches and uh, expands those who get to participate with you in this, in this great conversation, uh, both by listening in and by interacting over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter, the handles at outside the walls. And we always welcome your comments and conversations over there. So we talked uh, a little bit about conversion. If you have a conversion story, if you are a convert, first of all, happy anniversary here on this Holy Saturday, uh, even though it moves from year to year and the date isn't exactly because my, you know, I came to the church in May and obviously we're not there. But uh, nonetheless, it's Easter Vigil tonight. Tonight's the night where we, we have the just most glorious liturgy, I think, of the whole year. That, that Easter Easter Vigil liturgy. So I want to encourage you, if you've never been to an Easter Vigil or you haven't been in a while, make plans. Make plans to go tonight. Take the kids. They're going to be restless. But you know what? So is everyone else's kids. And it's okay. Go ahead. Uh, let them participate in this most glorious liturgy of the church. So our interview was about conversion. Uh, at the very beginning of the show, we talked about this uncomfortable feeling that comes with Holy Saturday. And uh, there's a reading from the ancient church. In fact, in the, the book that I have, I'm, I'm reading it out of the breviary. It comes up every, every Holy Saturday. And uh, it doesn't even list when it, when it was from. It's just from an ancient homily on Holy Saturday. So we, we don't even know, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it came from, but it is beautiful. And it helps us to get a handle on what it means for this Holy Saturday, what it means for Christ to have died and what was accomplished in those three days. Before we get to that reading, I do want to do uh, one reading from, from, uh, from Scripture today. This is the epistle. They'll read this tonight after they have read all of the Old Testament readings, of which there are seven, seven Old Testament readings and seven Psalms. And then we finally get to the New Testament, and they turn on the lights. We all feel uh, the joy of being back in the light. And we hear this from the book of Romans. Brothers and sisters, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. For if we have grown into union with him through a death like his, we shall also be united with him in the resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that our sinful body might be done away with, that we might no longer be in slavery to sin, 
for a dead person has been absolved from sin. If then we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. As to his death, he died to sin once and for all. As to his life, he lives for God. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as being dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. And what a powerful statement to us today to realize that Christ's death didn't just reconcile us, but we, just as he took on our suffering, like we talked about last week, he also brought us into his death and into his resurrection so that we can now lay aside those sins that so easily entangle us and live a life of holiness, that universal call to holiness that we now uh, strive to be saints in everything we do. And that'll look different for you than it does for me, and yet it still looks like holiness. And so I hope that this Holy Saturday, this Easter, we are drawn into uh, the beauty of what that looks like to live a life of holiness, not of rules and regulations for the sake of rules and regulations, but a life that joyfully lives in relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read to you as we kind of alluded to in the very opening of the show, and we did again in the opening of this segment, this beautiful reading about what happened on Holy Saturday when Christ was laid in the tomb and all the earth felt void and the disciples felt the loss of Christ. This, this man with whom they had walked for three years, listened to and learned from, he was gone. And this is what the ancient homilist says. Something strange is happening. There is a great silence on earth today a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh. And he has raised up all who have ever slept since the world began. God has died in the flesh, and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parent as for a lost sheep. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow the captives, Adam and Eve, he who is both God and the son of Eve. The Lord approached them bearing the cross, the weapon that had won him the victory. At the sight of him, Adam, the first man he created, struck his breast in terror and cried out to everyone, My Lord be with you all, Christ answered him, and with your spirit. He took him by the hand and raised him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. Out of love for you and for your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are held in bondage to come forth, and all who are in darkness to be enlightened, all who are sleeping to arise. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands, you who were created in my image. Rise, let us leave this place. For you are in me, and I am in you. 
Together we form only one person, and we cannot be separated. For your sake, I, your God, became your son. I, the Lord, took the form of a slave. I, whose home is above the heavens, descended to earth and beneath the earth. For your sake, for the sake of man, I became like a man without help, free among the dead. For the sake of you who left the garden, I was betrayed to the Jews in a garden, and I was crucified in a garden. See, on my face the spittle I received in order to restore to you the, the life I once breathed into you. See there the marks of the blows I received in order to refashion your warped nature in my image on my back. See the marks of scourging I endured to remove the burden of sin that weighs upon your back. See my hands, nailed firmly to a tree, for you who once wickedly stretched out your hand to a tree. I slept on the cross, and a sword pierced my side for you who slept in paradise and brought forth Eve from your side. My side has healed the pain in yours. My sleep will rouse you from your sleep in hell. The sword that pierced me has sheathed the sword that was turned against you. Rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. I will not restore you to that paradise, but I will enthrone you in heaven. I forbade you the tree that was only a symbol of life, but see, I who am life itself, am now one with you. I appointed cherubim to guard you as slaves are guarded, but now I make them worship you as God. The throne formed by cherubim awaits you, its bearers swift and eager. The bridal chamber is adorned. The banquet is ready. The eternal dwelling places are prepared. The treasure houses of all good things lie open. The kingdom of heaven has been prepared for you from all eternity. That's a reading from an ancient homily on Holy Saturday. And what a beautiful and powerful message. And every time I read it, I tear up and I can't help it because I know that he's speaking to Adam, but I know that he's speaking to me. And that's Holy Saturday, to realize that Christ paid it all for my sin and for yours. So may your Easter joy be overflowing, because you have been redeemed from so great a sin into so great a relationship with the God who loves you. That's all the time we have for this week. Join the conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. Outside the Walls is made possible by the generous contributions of our friends of the show and is heard around the world on terrestrial radio, live streaming, and podcast. For more details, visit OutsideTheWalls.com. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.